0: Good evening. It is an honor to be with you today. I want to thank our bishop, the right Reverend Dr. Felix Orgy, for asking me to come and uh, teach you this evening in his stead while he's at the House of Bishops meeting and uh, as he prepares to go on sabbatical. Uh, For those who do not know who I am, um, I'm the uh, venerable Isaac Rayburg. And I'm the Archdeacon for Liturgy in the Anglican Diocese of All Nations, as well as the Rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio, Texas. Um, We are here in, in our chapel at All Saints today. Um, as i said it is an honor to be speaking with you today um, I, my understanding is that uh... there were some questions that rose up when uh... bishop orgy was speaking about john three recently and so he called me and asked me to um, answer some of the questions related to baptism and just give a teaching on baptism and I, I must say i was both honored and a little bit surprised to be entrusted with uh... with with such a responsibility so again Thank you, Father Bishop, and thank you all for uh, tuning in. Uh, This topic of baptism is one that divides Christians deeply. Um, It's one where different denominations deal with things in very different ways. We look at some of these scriptures in different ways. And so because of those divisions, those very sad divisions, really, and because of that diversity of the way that Christians, at least since the Reformation, have approached this, What I want to do today is to limit um, the personal opinions that I bring into this. I don't want to bring in my own understandings. Um, I don't want to bring in a lot of outside understandings, but rather I want to do things in the classically Anglican way where we begin with scripture and we then go on to our formularies. Now, our formularies as Anglicans are the historic Book of Common Prayer, kind of reaching its zenith in the 1662 edition. The Articles of Religion is the other major formulary, the ordinal that's attached to these things. All of these are usually bound together in the prayer book. And per the Jerusalem Declaration of Gafcon, as well as for us in the Anglican Church of North America, the ACNA Fundamental Declarations, these historic formularies are our theological center, regardless of whether we're using the older Book of Common Prayer or not. This is where we, 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 we look to for the way that we understand the scriptural truths, the lens through which we interpret things that are at times divisive, such as, such as baptism and to this i would also add the uh, book of homilies kind of in a maybe secondary position as a formulary uh, but again that is addressed in the articles of religion as well as anglican history these three things the prayer book with the ordinal the articles and the book of homilies are our classical formularies and i think it would be a good idea for us as anglicans to root ourselves in that theologically, rather than importing things from um, generic evangelicalism, the Pentecostal world, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, or whatever, let's actually look at our own documents. So with that in mind, I would like to open with a prayer. This is a prayer in the 1662 International Edition, one of these supplementary additional prayers. This is the prayer for the right use of scriptures. Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed to us the rich and precious jewel of thy most holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine image, to build us up and edify us into the perfect building of thy Christ, sanctifying and increasing us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O heavenly Father, for the sake of the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, Amen. So let's begin then with looking at some scriptures. Now, there, if you if you looked up the word baptism or baptize in your concordance, um, in your Bible app, that's a that's a very good thing we have these days. Um, you're going to find a lot of scriptures that just kind of mention it in passing. We don't see a lot of very solid teaching on baptism in particular but when we start to put these passages together we do get a, a very solid picture of what the Bible tells us about baptism so when looking at the New Testament the first conclusion that we're going to we're going to reach is that we have three different kinds of baptism in the New Testament so first of all, We have Jewish baptism, which is for the purpose of ritual cleansing in the temple, but also we know historically that by the time of Jesus and the apostles, it was customary for converts to Judaism, that is Gentiles who took up the God of Israel and became Jewish, it was customary for them to be baptized as well. Then the second kind of baptism is John's baptism in the Gospels. John the Baptist. And John's baptism is there to point us to Jesus. He is the forerunner. He is the herald. And his baptism is a baptism of repentance for preparation. Preparation for the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the promised one. And then finally we have Christian baptism. Which is the covenant sign of the New Covenant, it's the sign of the New Covenant given to us by the Lord, and it becomes our sacrament of entrance into the church, entrance into this New Covenant family. The, the church fathers, when looking at these three kinds of baptism, um, they speak of the uh, Jewish baptism as being in water only, um, the John's baptism as being of, with water and repentance, and then finally, our Lord's baptism, Christian baptism, as consisting of water, repentance, and the Spirit. And I think that distinction is very important um, because sometimes we can get especially these last two baptisms mixed up, and we shouldn't do that. We'll talk about that a little bit as well. Um, and, And in particular, what we do see is that John's baptism is not Christian baptism, and the most explicit reference to this is in Acts chapter 19, when the apostles come upon some believers who had never heard of the Holy Spirit. And the apostles are astonished, and they say, okay, if you have never even heard of the Holy Spirit, how were you baptized? And they find out they had only received John's baptism. And so these would-be disciples are then given Christian baptism in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Because it can't be Christian baptism if it's not Trinitarian, as our Lord tells us at the end of Matthew's gospel. The second thing we see when we start to put together the various scriptures about baptism, and again, we're not going to look at every single one of these, is that Christian baptism is not about making a public profession. We never see it commanded that you, you make your public profession and baptism is that public profession. We never see that in the scriptures. It's never commanded with, with baptism, public profession. And when we see it together, it really is incidental. Rather, More often what we do see is kind of private baptisms. Um, you always are baptized. Nobody baptizes himself. But that necessity of it being, of baptism being your public profession, that is not what we see in the New Testament. Rather, the picture is that baptism is a gift from God, not something that we do for God that's another very important kind of ground rule for how we understand baptism as Anglicans we do see however though a public profession is not what baptism is about we do see that repentance is commanded to come with baptism and the uh, we we see this at one of the earliest pictures of Christian baptism Acts chapter 2 verses 38 and 39 let's read that very quickly Acts 2, verses 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So we've got a lot of things related to baptism in this sermon, this excerpt of Peter's sermon to those Jews at Pentecost. First of all, we see that repentance and baptism do indeed go together. Second of all, we see that with baptism comes the gift of the Holy Spirit. I know that last week, uh, Bishop Orgie spoke about the gift of the Holy Spirit and praying for the Holy Spirit. And where this starts is indeed with our baptism. And then next, in verse 39, we see that the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are fall off, far off and all who are near, as many one, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is for you and for your children. This is not merely related to adult professions rather this is for the family for all who are far off all who are near whoever is being called by God and we're going to talk about some of that as it's echoed in our catechism and in our baptismal service um, as we move forward the next thing that we want to see is that the church has historically always seen the old covenant sign that is circumcision circumcision of the males in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, that that sign of the Old Covenant points to Christian baptism. It is a type, we say theologically, of Christian baptism. And probably the best, the best portion of scripture that speaks to this is Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. This is Colossians 2, verse 11. having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So it's very clear in scriptures that in the new covenant, circumcision is no longer a requirement. Um, Matter of fact, it's the sign of the old covenant. Nevertheless, St. Paul here says that um, there is a circumcision made without hands, And he ties that to our baptisms. And then that's also tied to repentance, to being cleansed from our sins, and to um, Jesus' work on the cross. All of these things are tied together. And there are some other Old Old Testament types and references that we see in our baptismal service. Also, again, based on various passages in the New Testament. We're not going to look up each of these passages. We'll just list this for you today. Um, Noah's Ark is seen as a type of baptism. So just as uh, Noah and his family were saved from the waters of judgment by the Ark, so we are saved from the fire of judgment through baptism being the boat that we ride in to the church on. Um, Also, we have Exodus, the Exodus of Israel. The waters of judgment were split so that they could walk between them, walk through the waters that were going to be judgment on Egypt, but instead God used those waters as a way to bring about their salvation. And again, we see that this is a type of baptism. We pass through the waters of baptism in a similar way to how the Israelites pass through the waters of the Exodus. Those waters that should have been judgment become the means of salvation. And then we also see throughout the passages in the scriptures relating to baptism that it is identified with Jesus' death, with his burial and resurrection. We die to sin when we are baptized just as Jesus died on the cross. We are buried in our baptism just as Jesus was buried into the earth. And then we, are, we, are, we, are, we, are, we have resurrection to new life just as Jesus was raised from the dead. Now let's look at, the, look at our catechism, um, and we're going to see some more of these passages of scriptures pop up as we look into um, the, these passages from our formulary. So this is the catechism in the, in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, and I'll, I'll read to you the beginning passages that relate, to, um, that relate to baptism, but also sacraments in general. So this first question is, how many sacraments hath Christ ordained in his church? Two only is generally necessary for salvation, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord. The next question, what meanest thou by this word sacrament? Answer, I mean an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us, ordained by Christ himself as a means by which we receive that grace and a pledge to assure us thereof. The next question, how many parts are there in a sacrament Two, the outward invisible sign and the inward and spiritual grace. Now, we're going to stop here before we get into the part that's specifically about baptism. And let's unpack this a little bit. So first of all, um, our formularies limit the sacraments to two. And that doesn't mean that the other five that um, that that were historically called sacraments at the end of the Middle Ages, at least in the Western Church, that doesn't mean that they're not important. But there's something special about these two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And here's what we're told is special about them we are told they are generally necessary to salvation. In other words, the way that God normally works is that he uses baptism and communion sacramentally, and we're going to talk about what that means, for our salvation. That doesn't mean God is limited to, us, to that, but it does mean this is what he generally does, generally does when he saves us. And second, we see that Christ-ordained baptism, and the Lord's Supper himself. These are things that he gave us, he specifically commanded us. The other five um, are either, as the Articles of Religion say, they are either things that rose up naturally in the life of the church, Um, maybe they had some Old Testament, um, they were done in the Old Testament and kind of get new significance in the new. but, but and, and there's been different meanings assigned to those other five in different places and at different times. But baptism and the Lord's Supper have been consistent because Jesus gave them to us as means of grace, as generally necessary to salvation. And then we see that we have, we define a sacrament as an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us, ordained by Christ himself, as a means by which we receive that grace and a pledge to assure us thereof um so First of all, we have this outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Um, that's riffing off of what St. Augustine had said, oh goodness, well over a thousand years before at this point. Um, we, we get our understanding of this from the way that St. Augustine read the scriptures and he taught us and he showed us what, this, what the scriptures say. And we'll, we'll talk about his contribution a little bit later when we look at uh, one of the few times that the book of homilies talks about this issue. Um, so an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, it's given to us ordained by Christ. Again, we're, we're defining a sacrament as needing to have been ordained by Jesus himself. And it says that it's a means by which we receive that grace. He uses the sacraments to convey the grace of the sacrament to us. And we'll talk about what that grace is for baptism in just a moment. And then finally, it's a pledge to assure us of the grace. That means it's our guarantee. It's the thing that we can say, oh, I have indeed been given this grace by Jesus because of the sacrament. That's his pledge of assurance. It's similar to the wedding ring. It is the reminder that, yes, this is indeed something that has been done, and it means something spiritually. Let's continue. What is the outward invisible sign or form in baptism? The answer, water in which the person is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So the sign of baptism, the outward invisible sign, the thing you can touch is the water. You can touch, see, feel, um, can't really smell water. You could taste it if you wanted to. I don't recommend that, but you could. And the person is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That Trinitarian formula is essential to Christian baptism. Without it, it is not truly Christian baptism. Um, That's been the understanding from the earliest times in the church. Um, Next question. What is the inward and spiritual grace? Answer, a death unto sin and a new birth unto righteousness. For being by nature born in, in, in sin and the children of wrath, we are hereby made the children of grace. So our catechism tells us that the grace that we receive from being baptized is that we are dead to sin and we have new birth to righteousness. Dead to sin, new birth to righteousness. By nature, we're born in sin. We're the children of wrath. We deserve God's judgment because of our sin. By our, by our fallen human nature. But by baptism, instead, we are made the children of grace. This is the means by which God makes us the children of grace. That leads to the next question. What is required of persons to be baptized? Answer, repentance, by which they forsake sin, and faith, by which they steadfastly believe the promises of God made to them in that sacrament. So, we, so the grace of the sacrament is a gift from God. That's what grace means. It means it is an unearned gift. However, to receive that gift, we must have repentance. We must turn from our sins and turn to God. Um, there's two concepts in the scriptures that really give us this idea of repentance. In the Old Testament, the word in Hebrew talks about turning around. You were going the wrong way. Now you're going the right way. You were going away from God. Now you're going to God. So changing direction, that's the Old Testament concept. The New Testament concept is more of rethinking. You were thinking the wrong things, you have changed your mind, and now you're thinking the right things. Your thoughts were in error because they were selfish, they were sinful, they were against the Lord. You have changed your mind and now you are loyal to God, following God, thinking of God. And these two things really are what repentance are about. We, 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 we have been doing the wrong thing. We rethink it, and we go the right way. We were, we were going from God. We were thinking against God. We are now thinking towards God. We are moving towards God. And then also we have here faith. Another word for faith, again, in the original languages, is this idea of trust. Who are we trusting? Are we trusting in the baptism? Not in of itself. That's just water. It's water that's being used for a special purpose, for a a sacramental purpose, which means it's important. But it's not the water itself. It's not the baptismal ceremony itself that we have faith in. No, we have faith in God and in his promises. And our baptism is given us as a sign of that God is trustworthy, a sign of his promises. But we're going to raise an obvious objection here, next part in our catechism. So if we need repentance and faith, here's the next question. Why then are infants baptized when by reason of their tender age, they cannot perform them? So infants cannot have active faith and cannot actively repent. They're too young to do so. The answer, because they promise both of them by their sureties, which promise when they come to age, they themselves are bound to perform. In other words, we have the parents and the godparents making promises for the children, for the children, on behalf of the children. Now, these parents and the godparents, they have spiritual authority over, the, over that child. God has placed them in spiritual authority over that child so that they do have the authority to make those promises on behalf of that child. Um, this is similar, we could say, to a regent in a, in, a, in a land with a monarchy. If the king is too young to rule, he maybe his, his, his father died and he's too young to rule, then they will establish a regent someone who will rule in his name until he's old enough to take on his kingly responsibilities. Or we might look at it in our country, um, a trust fund is a similar kind of arrangement. Um, If if, um, a, a, a parent has left a lot of money to a child, but that child is too young to use that money, they will set up a fund in trust where someone is in charge of maintaining that money, distributing that money, until the child is of legal age when all of that, they've grown up enough, they're of legal age, it's gonna be, be talked about in that trust fund, um, in, the, in the legal documents, and now they have responsibility over all of that money, over all that property themselves. It's the same kind of thing. So the sponsors have a spiritual authority to be sureties, to act in trust, for the child the parents and the godparents and with that comes the responsibility as we'll see in the baptismal service to raise the child in the covenant that child has been brought into God's covenant the sponsors have made the vows on behalf of the child and now the sponsors have a responsibility to raise that child in the covenant so that until such a time as they can take those vows upon themselves. And this echoes the, uh, the, the, the homily of common prayer and the sacraments that we find in the second book of homilies. Um, just a few very brief quotes from that homily. Uh, This is, again, from the second book of homilies, and it's the homily of common prayer and the sacraments. And the force of the homily is why we should do um, prayer and sacraments in a language that the people understand. That's really the main point. But in the beginning, it does have this wonderful discussion on what a sacrament is. So we here say it says, The exact signification of a sacrament, namely for visible signs expressly commanded in the New Testament, Whereunto is annexed the promise of free forgiveness of our sins and of our holiness and joining in Christ. What does this mean? That a sacrament is a sign that God has attached promises to. Promises relating to our salvation, our for the forgiveness of sins, and our holiness in Christ. Are joining to Christ. Um, this homily also um, quotes St. Augustine as describing sacraments as holy signs, that is, signs that set us apart. And um, then he goes on to talk about that the uh, sacraments are naturally going to have um, a similarity to the things that they signify so that you really can speak of the baptism as the sacrament of repentance, the sacrament of washing us clean of our skin of our sins, rather, (laughs) of our sins. And he goes on to note that circumcision, we could call it a sacrament in the Old Testament because the cutting of the flesh and circumcision is supposed to point us to the cutting away of the stony parts of our heart, the calcified parts of our heart, um, so that we would have a heart of flesh turned to God. Okay, let's go on from the, uh, from the catechism and look at article number 27 in our 39 articles of religion. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the article about baptism. Here's what we read. Baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, whereby Christian men are discerned from others that be not christened, but it is also a sign of regeneration or new birth, whereby, as by an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. The promises of the forgiveness of sins and of our adoption to be the sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed, faith is confirmed, and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. And then it goes on to say, The baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable, with the institution of Christ. Now we'll start with that last bit first. Um, We're going to, as we look at the baptismal service in the the old prayer book in the 1662, we're going to see a case being made for baptism of children being agreeable to the institution of, of Christ by looking at the scriptures that relate to this and we will look at some of those as well. But let's look at how we're describing baptism. So it's not only a sign of profession and a mark of difference where Christians are, are, are distinguished from those that are not Christians. And it is that, but it's not only that. So that's, that's a point. Um, baptism is a difference between those that are visibly Christians, those that, have, that, have, that, that name the name of Christ and those who do not. But it's not only that. It's also, it says here, a sign of regeneration or new birth. Regeneration means new birth. And so this is our sign of new birth. And that's an area where we're going to have a lot of questions, and we will address those as we go through. It says, whereby, as by an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church, which includes the promises of forgiveness of sin, our adoption to be the sons of God by the Holy Ghost, and we are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed. Grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. So it says, who rightly receive baptism. Um In the, in the original Latin of our articles, that word rightly there is not referring to the right of the church, as in the ceremony. It's not about the ceremony. It's about being done in a right manner, in a correct manner. And what is that? Well, our catechism told us repentance and faith. So to receive the benefits of baptism, we must have repentance and faith. And it says here, though, that it is a sign of regeneration of new birth, whereby, as by an instrument, those who receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church and receive all those blessings. Um, So baptism is the, that's why we call baptism a means of grace, is because we receive it, baptism is the instrument that God gives us the grace. Uh, But uh, Harold Brown in his, um, I believe this was Harold Brown, in his commentary on this article, um, he makes a really good analogy. He says, don't think about it as conveying this the blessings and conveying the grace in the same way that a wire carries electricity rather look at it more in terms of the way that a deed conveys ownership this is something that we must grasp we must exercise um, the to to receive these benefits it's not something that happens automatically by virtue of 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 the ceremony that's the point that he's making So from here, I think, looking at the way we describe baptism, again, here are the blessings. Um, We're grafted into the church, so that means we are in the covenant, the new covenant. We receive the promises of forgiveness of sin and our adoption um, to be sons by the Holy Ghost. So our sins are forgiven, we're brought into God's family by adoption by the Holy Ghost. That is visibly signed and sealed, so again, there's that deed language this is visibly signed and sealed. This is our, 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 our deed. It is our document of ownership, our document of membership into the visible church is our baptism. And then our faith is confirmed. That means it is strengthened. Grace is increased. So we, we receive um, whatever grace we have received is increased in our baptism. How? By virtue of prayer unto God. Okay. Okay. Let's look at those baptismal services. Um, we're, I want to begin, so in our 1662 Book of Common Prayer, that foundational theological text for the prayer book, again, if you're using other, other versions, that's fine, but remember that this is gonna be the theological center of gravity, this 1662, um, according to the GAFCON documents, according to the ACNA's founding documents, and really according to historic Anglican practice, this is going to be our theological center of gravity even if you're using another prayer book. I'm incidentally here at All Saints we do use a different prayer book we use the American 1928 but I'm still going to go to this 1662 when I want to know exactly what our tradition tells us theologically. Okay so let's start with the baptism of adults. And the reason why I want to start there is because things are a lot more straightforward when it comes to adults. Um, most of the pictures of baptism we do see in the New Testament explicitly are those of adults. Now there's some implied um, inclusion of the rest of the family and we would, we would um, it would be a very good assumption to see that that would probably include little children especially within the cultural context of the ancient Near East. Um, little children are included, but the people we actually see get baptized in the book of Acts are all adults. They are converts. And so um, the most explicit things that the scriptures are going to tell us do relate to adult converts. So in, in, um, in our adult baptismal service, the main text that we're going to use is actually John 3, beginning at verse 1. So this is the passage that um, the bishop was speaking about a couple weeks ago that that led to the questions that bring us this class today. And so I'll be reading it in the uh, prayer book, so that's in the King James. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So born again, regenerate. He needs new birth. Continuing, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus doesn't understand how this is going to happen. And he should understand that there are pictures of new birth throughout Jewish culture at this time, um, which is why uh, Jesus later on says, you know, you, <laughs> you're a master in Israel and you don't understand this. Um, that doesn't show up in our passage quoted in the prayer book, but um, that's part of what's going on here. So, but Jesus is going to answer him. He's not going to, um, going, to, going to treat Nicodemus like an idiot. He's going to answer him. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. So we have a couple things here. Um, Within our prayer book, um, there is that connection being made between what Jesus is teaching here about being born again in water and spirit and in baptism. Now, this is admittedly controversial. Um, There was a lot of people, um, you know, within the last few hundred years who have said how can this be about baptism it's not really talking about baptism but historically the church did see it as related to baptism matter of fact every every pre-medieval commentary and even medieval commentary we have on this passage does connect it to baptism in some way that said, and you know, and, and we do see when the, you know the argument that um, there's no context of baptism. We actually see the passage immediately following this this meeting with Nicodemus. Um, Jesus and the apostles are baptizing. John the Baptist's disciples get annoyed about that, and they complain to John. And John says, "No, this is a good thing." Um, later on, um, in the next chapter, it's clarified that actually Jesus wasn't baptizing just the disciples, but nevertheless, we do see um, baptism is there. Um, and it fits, it fits in, t- to my understanding, the way that John's gospel goes in general. This could be wrong, but we do see that that connection is being made by our prayer book, by, by um, our tradition between water and baptism. However, remember that Jesus does say um, that, that that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And he says that the wind bloweth where it listeth. The word for wind is the same word as spirit in Greek. So the spirit blows where he will, just as the wind blows wherever it listeth, wherever the wind wants to blow. And therefore, those that are born of the spirit similarly are blown however the spirit wants to go. The, the spirit's the one that does the work. So the important thing, I think, here is is that, yes, being born of water, and and, and, I, and I, our prayer book does... Um, explicitly tell us that that is at least hinting at baptism. It can be applied to baptism. That's important. But even more important is the the birth of the Spirit, the new birth of the Spirit. We have then a follow-up prayer after we read this passage. The minister says this, Beloved, ye hear in this gospel the express words of our Savior Christ, that except a man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, whereby ye may perceive the great necessity of this sacrament where it may be had. Likewise, immediately before his ascension into heaven, as we read in the last chapter of St. Mark's gospel, he gave command to his disciples, saying, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. So we have yet another scriptural reference. Um, that command, um, the, really we can call it the Great Commission in Mark's Gospel. This echoes the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel as well, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, where baptism is tied to, to evangelism, to the spread of the Gospel. Um, but it's also tied with belief. In Matthew's gospel, it's tied to to teaching, teaching people to follow Jesus, to do what Jesus said. In Mark's gospel, it's tied to belief. Again, the the baptism is important, but without belief, it's it's not efficacious. Without repentance, it's not efficacious. And condemnation is based on lack of belief. So if you are baptized and you do not believe in Jesus. You do not trust in Jesus. You have not repented of your sins. That baptism does you no good. Continuing on. So um, he, we, we get that quote from Mark's Gospel. Be he that believeth not shall be condemned, which also showeth unto us the great benefit we reap thereby. For which cause St. Peter the Apostle Taken upon his first preaching of the gospel, many were pricked at the heart and said unto him and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Replied and said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remissions of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for the promises to you and your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call We've looked at this passage before. This is Acts chapter 2. Um, repent and be baptized. Driving home this need for repentance, this need for belief. Uh, we, we continue on. With many other words, he exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. For, as the same apostle testifieth in another place, even baptism also now doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Okay, let's look at that passage. This is from 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I have this written later on in my notes, so I'm not going to... I didn't bookmark it. I should have. But this is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. St. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, powers, having all been subjected unto him. So we have um, pointed out in this passage um, our Lord's sacrificial death, his suffering and death for sins, so that he would bring us to God. We have this um, connection to Noah and the ark. Um, That's there. But we also say that that, it also says here, St. Peter says, explicitly baptism which corresponds to this that is the ark now saves you but he qualifies that not as a removal of dirt from the body so it's not about being washed but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of christ in other words it's related to repentance so as we go through the rest of our baptismal service for adults we see that repentance um, because, of, because of repentance in some of those follow-up prayers, um, we are assured of remission of our sins, we are assured of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are reassure, assured of the blessings of eternal life, we are assured that we have been made partakers of God's everlasting kingdom, and we are assured, most of all, the goodwill of God towards us, declared by Jesus. So for adults, they take the baptismal vows upon themselves. Those vows are made personally, um, which is a sign of their repentance. Now, can someone be lying if they say that? Yes, they could. But we're going to see this as a sign of being brought into the visible church. Um, Assuming that that repentance is real, we do indeed, we are assured of all these things. We are assured of the efficacy of baptism as that sign of our new birth, sign of regeneration, sign of our salvation but what about children the main text of our baptismal service for children is mark 10 beginning at verse 13. they brought young children to christ that he should touch them and his disciples rebuked those that brought them but when jesus saw it that is he saw them rebuking those who brought the children He was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And then he took them up into his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. That's the central text of our baptismal service to children. That text tells us that Jesus, as the old children's song says, Jesus loves the little children. (laughs) The little children belong to him, especially the children of believers. Suffer the little children to come to me. Allow them to come to me. We have this follow-up prayer that points out that Jesus commands the children to be brought to him. It points out that Jesus rebuked those who would keep the children from Jesus. And then it points out that in this passage, we are all exhorted to follow children in their innocency. The faith that a child has, that, that innocent trust, is the kind of trust that we all should have. And we were reminded then, by this passage, of our Lord's goodwill and blessing of the children So again, this tells us that children of Christians already belong to Jesus. We're not baptizing them so they can belong to Jesus, but they already belong to Jesus. We are baptizing them to bring them visibly into the church. And how do we know that he has goodwill towards those children? Well, because he already put them in Christian homes and he gave them Christian sponsors. He gave them Christian parents and Christian godparents. And so we know that Jesus loves those children by giving them that common grace of being raised in the faith. We move on to another prayer that asks, with confidence, asks God to give these children the gift of the Holy Spirit. Give them new birth. Make them an heir of everlasting salvation. We are are assured throughout the the, the baptismal service um, that, that God keeps his promises. So when we ask for that gift of the Holy Spirit on our children, when we ask for that gift of new birth, when we ask that God would make them an heir, of, an heir of everlasting salvation, we can be sure that God will keep his promises. But the sponsors also make promises. They make promises to raise the child in the faith until the child can take upon himself the promises of his baptism. After he is then baptized, the child is received into Christ's body. That is the visible church. He's received into the church, made a member of the church. And then that's where the controversial, seeing as this child is now regenerate, is made. This declaration of the regeneration of children. Put a bookmark there. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. The service concludes with thanking God that he has been pleased to regenerate the child with the Holy Ghost, receive the child as his own by adoption, incorporate him into the Holy Church, and then we pray that the child as he grows will be dead to sin, living to righteousness, buried with Christ, crucifying the old man, abolishing sin, and as this child has died with Christ that he may partake of the resurrection and with the rest of the church inherit everlasting life. And then finally the congregation Is exhorted to take part in raising this child in the faith. Um, One of my least favorite politicians once said that it takes a village to raise a child. And this politician was soundly mocked for it by some and soundly praised by others. But I think it is accurate to say it takes a church to raise a child in the faith. Don't keep your children away from church, don't inoculate your children against the gospel. Let's talk about this idea, though, of regeneration. That's where one of the big controversies comes because of this passage. Excuse me. Again, we see that regeneration means new birth. It means being born again. It's important, all, all all the commentators, all the major Orthodox people that have ever talked about our articles of religion explaining them to us and talked about our prayer book explaining it to us. They all point out that we should not see regeneration necessarily as the same thing as conversion or moral renewal. That's So in the eyes of our reformers, that's not the focus of this. In fact, it was pointed out to me that even the Puritans, they didn't even object to this concept of regeneration, this regeneration language in the, in the baptismal service. Um, because they understood that we're not saying, when we say this child is regenerate, we're not saying that there has been necessarily moral conversion, um, moral renewal, anything like that. Uh, one of these commentators, um, uh, W.H. Griffith Thomas, in his commentary on the article, and he's kind of the, um, the, the, the gold standard for evangelical understanding of the, of the articles historically, Griffith Thomas gives the analogy of life and birth. Absolutely, life and birth are connected, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, How do we know this? Well, life begins at conception. In the old days, they called when a mother would feel that baby moving for the first time, they would call it the quickening, that proof that there is life. So that life begins, in most, uh, most normal cases, nine months before the birth. And we also see that at the time of Jesus, there were various major stages in a person's life as, as, a, as a typical Jew of those days that would have been metaphorically seen as new birth. Um, things like if a slave was set free, he was seen as being born again. Um, if a, it, when a man was married, it was a new stage in life that was akin to being born again. Things like that. So that means the question is, in what way do we have new birth in baptism? Well, we can certainly say that formally we are joined to the visible church and therefore we are brought into the formal visible covenant with God. That's why there's all this deed language, this language that reminds us of of legal documents when we're talking about this in in, in our tradition. And so by the means of grace, we can trust that this will indeed yield true repentance one day if we do take Use of those means. What are the means of grace? Well, it's the word and the sacrament. The Holy Spirit speaks through His word preached and His word written. When you read the Bible, you're receiving the means of grace. When you sit under a preacher who is properly talking about the Bible and, and explaining it to you—you you are receiving the means of grace. When you rightly are baptized, you receive the means of grace. When you come to the Lord's table at communion, you receive grace. These are the means of grace—the way that the Holy Spirit uses to convey His grace to speak to us. J.I. Packer says that the God, that um, some. People like to talk about the sacraments as if they were, or the gospel as if it was about the sacraments. But the right way to talk about it is that the sacraments are about the gospel. They are promises that God has given us to point us to the gospel. So if we use the means of grace, if we come to church, if we hear the word of God, if we engage in the spiritual disciplines, and if we put our faith in God, we can be assured that, that that child being baptized will indeed repent and trust in God and, and there will be true repentance, true fruit. And the baptism of that child, that change that comes because he has been brought into the church, been joined to the covenant, and that is a real indeed spiritual change, that that will yield its fruit. We can trust God for that. However, on the other hand, to harden your heart against the means of grace is the sin of apostasy. To harden your heart when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you through the word and through the sacraments is the sin of apostasy. And I truly do believe that when the Lord Jesus speaks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's what he means. And that is wor- it is worse to be an apostate than to be an unbeliever. So we do not get the benefits of baptism without repentance. Um, This is not what we say in Latin, ex opere operato, that in other words, the grace of the sacrament is not independent of the recipient. Our formularies firmly reject that idea. Nevertheless, being brought into the church, being brought into the covenant is a real spiritual change and it is a real, um, it is real grace. So let's finally address the elephant in the room. Why is this idea, why why is this idea of, of, of what does baptismal regeneration mean, why is that so controversial? Well, it's because we have a problem. What do we do? How do we understand all those folks who have been baptized but show no fruit of repentance? They have no good deeds. They have no Christian works. They are living exactly the same way as the wicked, exactly as the same way as an unbeliever. And they might say that they're a Christian, but, but, but other than that, there's no, there's, no, there's no fruit. There's no sign. They do not have any evidence that they actually have had new birth. Well, it's important to point out that our formularies don't dig into the deep mysteries of how God chooses and how God grants faith, although they do tell us that it is God who chooses, God elects, and God does grant faith. And I would caution, whether you are a Calvinist or an Arminian, whatever, as an Anglican, let, again, let the formularies be your your theological center here. Um, you may be a Calvinist who believes in the in the in the in the, the um, doctrines behind the acronym TULIP. That's fine. But our, our formularies don't quite go that far. And so it's fine to believe that. But, but, but don't, don't make the formularies say that. You know, In a similar way, you may, be, you may be a high churchman who believes in all seven of the ecumenical councils and that sort of thing, but it, our formularies never talk about that. And in fact, they say that sometimes those things might, might lead us to error if they were done wrong because the scripture is what's important. And we, we want to stick to what we understand from the holy scriptures. And I do believe that our formularies expound that um, really better than any other tradition. That's why I'm an Anglican. <laughs> so our formularies don't get into the deep mysteries of God about how he chooses, how he grants faith, but they do remind us, because the scripture says so, that he does choose and that he does grant faith. So here's what our formularies tell us. That, that God's choice, God's election, is there for our assurance It's not there to try to figure out what's going on in other men's souls. It's a gift to you so that you can know that you're here because God wanted you to be here. A friend of mine calls this the family secret of the church. So what that means by our formularies is that if you are baptized, if you are receiving the means of grace, if you're walking with the Lord, consider yourself chosen. Consider yourself among the elect. Don't worry about that that fruit is evidence your baptism is evidence it's there for you for assurance and so how does the lord give us assurance the sacraments were told that they are there for our assurance they are there to assure us of his goodwill towards us assure us that we belong to him baptism and the lord's supper point us point to us that we do indeed belong to him um, throughout the prayer book and the articles, we have similar statements. We have the forgiveness in our absolution. Um, and so a Christian can trust that God loves him, has called him, and has saved him. And baptism is one of the ways that God assures us through the promises that he gives us in our baptism. That said, we are also called to repentance. Again, repentance means to return to God. It means to rethink You were going the wrong way go the right way go back to God you were thinking the wrong things think the right things think 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 things of God now since all of us sin we are all called to repentance even when we are for the most part walking with the Lord we still we still fail God we still sin every day that's why we have confession and absolution twice a day in morning evening prayer we have it in every service that we do um, if, your, if your prayer book is skipping the confession and repentance, put it back in. That's part of having, <laughs> if it gives you the option, don't take that option. Because that, that's part of having our historic formularies as that theological center. We need that assurance of forgiveness. And we need the opportunity to repent. We need the opportunity to confess in that general confession. We are naked before God in our prayer book, in our formularies. We are miserable offenders in whom there is no health. But repentance is especially called for in those who have fallen into grievous sin and whose souls are in peril. Backsliding an apostasy looks very similar at the first. So if you find yourself beset by habitual sin, the answer is to repent. Even if that repentance looks exactly like it would be from a conversion, from being a pagan to being a Christian, from being a non-believer to a believer, we do not, in our tradition, re Because the book of Ephesians says we have one baptism. The baptized have already been brought into the visible church. They are members of the covenant, the visible covenant, and therefore they are called to return. Even if that looks as dramatic as a full-out conversion, it is still a call to return. So as Anglicans, we can't say, oh man, that sin I did, that was back, that was back when I wasn't a Christian, so I don't have to, I can, I'm, that's, that's back in the past, I, can, I don't have to deal with that. No, deal with it, repent. Look at the things that, that, that led you into that sin and avoid those things. Don't just write it off because you, know, you think that you weren't a Christian then and now you are a Christian. If you were baptized, As far as the visible church is concerned, you were a Christian. And you had a responsibility to to live as a Christian. So what we see here, and this is really where we're going to end, our formularies give us a very elegant answer to that problem of those who who, who appear not to be regenerate yet are baptized. And this is the solution. The penitent are assured, and the impenitent are called to repentance. No matter what, it's there to give us assurance and to call us to repentance. If you are not living out your baptismal vows, repent. If you are living out your baptismal vows, be assured. Because if you have been baptized, know that God has called you. He wants you in his church. He loves you. That's why he puts you in that situation. Now live like it. Thank you so much for listening today. Um, I will put a couple of uh, links in the, in, the, um, in the YouTube notes so that uh, you can look at some of these commentaries I referenced. Uh, Harold Brown, Griffith Thomas, um, the homily that I, I referenced. Um, but uh, do be assured that if you've been baptized, God loves you. Repent if you're sinning, but know that God loves you and you are called. Amen.